line. Can you hear a signal? I can't hear any signal. I can hear a signal. You're talking about the SOS? Yes. I'm just bantering. Yes. Okay. Yes. I just want to make sure. You know, I mean, I could have sworn I heard a lawnmower out there. I just, I just want you to know that I have control of all volumes. I'm just, I'm just bantering. I just, That's what we called for. Yeah, I know, but I kind of like the interior in here. It's probably not as good as the lawnmower is. Then again, the lawnmower doesn't have an interior. Okay, well, okay, yeah, does, you're right. How's that for banter? You said it was a John Deere. You know, we're supposed to let the audience know. That's John Deere has always been. Like, we weren't forth front. They've got to have it. We weren't supposed to let the audience know that we're bantering okay. while the music is, the theme music is playing. Okay, well, are you going to edit that out? No, I'm not going to edit Okay, that. don't edit Because nobody really cares. You know what I'm saying. Nobody, you know, okay, I can so totally not hear what you're saying. No, well, that's okay because I'm right across the table. Okay, well. In this, in this. Good thing there's a this, table In separate. this studio. Um, Clint Eastwood said is, it best. Is this, uh, is this. Your mouthwash isn't making it. Is this, is this the Chillfish Studios? I don't know. I think, I think that one went out because of the, uh, present circumstances surrounding society now. You know, that C word. The thing where why we wear everybody's mask, that's why Fish Studios went under. That's why in November we I don't make sure we vote for Trump. I think that... Uh, that's subliminal. Is it really? I'm, yeah. I'm surprised you even know what that word means. Subliminal, yeah. yeah. Vote for Trump in 2020. Yeah, well... Unless you're half asleep, then you're going to be voting for Biden. But that's just my opinion. Well... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know. My there's opinion no, doesn't matter. It's a free no, country for now. No, there, I didn't say that your opinion didn't matter. Yeah, uh, well, hmm. I think I hear a weed whacker out there, too. <laughs> I wonder what kind of is weed that, whacker is that, it is. Was that what your podcast would be called? Yeah. Notes from the weed whacker. That does not even sound right. No, it doesn't there's sound right. There's nothing that sounds right about that. Yeah. I think it's quite appropriate. Yeah. But then again, you know, since I kind of like the heavier, heavier stuff, maybe it's Notes from the Weed Kill Bottle. Oh, I don't know. Speaking of Weed Kill Bottle, have notes? Is there any way to know? Anyway, I don't know. Uh, okay, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, Is the coffee good as there? We're, as we're, speaking of which, you have your coffee? Uh, yeah, that's a full bottle of water right there. Oh, okay. Well, all right. I want to welcome everyone to the latest episode of Thoughts from a Lawnmower with Will Rouser. And uh, today... My guest, my, uh, what you would call my uh, alternate co-host, I guess, uh, my guest co-host, is none other than my younger, much, much uglier brother, uh, Jim Rouser. Say hello to the people, Jim. Greetings, Earthlings. Uh, and he is, he is an alien. He's not an illegal alien, but he is an alien. And uh, <laughs> he has his papers. Um, and I wanted to do something a little different. One of the, one of the premises of, of, of this podcast has always been about what I think. Um, it's always about what you think. It is always about what I think. And, uh, I've spent, uh, I've spent several podcasts talking about some pretty heavy subjects. Uh, I've, I've spoken I've kind of, you know, been some political commentary, some religious commentary. I've, I've had, I've had some, uh, I've had some pretty lighthearted fare, and I want this one to be kind of lighthearted as well. But uh, I've always said that not only are subjects like politics and religion 
and things of that nature that I have kind of hit pretty, uh, I guess, I won't say heavy, but I've, I've hit them probably the last couple of podcasts have been more geared towards that. I wanted to steer it back to music, and um, who better than to uh, talk about my... Uh, my influence, my musical influences. Someone who was actually there um, when we we both began kind of a journey um, in music. And uh, as you're gonna probably hear in this podcast, that uh, my brother and I don't see eye to eye on every on everything. But generally speaking, we uh, we we share similar opinions on this. And we're gonna talk today. Uh, about our, I made a list of, uh, well, actually, the overarching subject here is uh, the 80s metal, 80s rock and metal. Now, let me let me stop there and say that, uh, obviously, some of my listeners who are Christians, you might find that to be an oxymoron, you might find that a contradiction, but... Uh, I'm not here to. I'm not really here to argue whether or not you think I, I, that my brother or I should have listened to this kind of music or whatever. Fact is, we did and we do, and uh, I'm not really interested in debating that. So, uh, but what I I do want to do is kind of give an insight into what my musical inspirations were, uh, and uh, we're just gonna we're just gonna talk about the talent and the. Uh, the awesomeness that uh, this music uh, had effect on us, um, <clears throat> at least from a from a taste standpoint. And uh, so, uh, I mean, well, how do you feel about that? I mean, we... uh, well, uh, I was there. I remember the very first time that I was introduced to what I call hard rock slash heavy metal uh almost like it was just yesterday i think if i reach back in my memory banks since i'm going to go with the alien theme theme (laughs) right at the moment uh i remember one of the first three albums i think i ever heard was uh night ranger dawn patrol uh blackout by the scorpions and uh headhunter by crocus those are the first three heavy metal albums that really stick out in my mind that I first listened to, and then it just kind of left, and the road went from there. Uh, I'm not going to say those are the heaviest albums I've ever listened to. They didn't, like, hit me over the head, so to speak, but that's what opened the door and started my path down the uh, heavy metal walkway, so to speak. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, um, just kind of before we kind of dive into this deep it was it was interesting that um i remember getting my first transistor radio at about 12 and you know excuse me um we had listened to music all our lives because you know dad was kind of an audiophile but not rock i mean you if you if you count elvis as rock okay yeah we had some of that maybe you know the platters but for the most part, that was not 
our listening fair growing up until we hit our pre-teenage years. And uh, I remember when I got my first transistor radio and uh, I found a station because I was, I loved the Doobie Brothers because uh, I saw them on that show, uh, that that show that was in the 70s called um, What's Happening. And I loved, I loved them. And so I found a radio station. I was actually playing them at the, at the time. It was uh, Michael McDonald singing uh, the song Real Love, which is still my favorite Doobie Brothers song. But, um, and as I, the more I listened and I hear, I heard all, all the stuff. This was, let's see, I was, I want to say, let's see. 1979 somewhere around in there because we had just gotten back from from being stationed in Germany so it was 1979 I was 12 right around then and then I started so I started listening to everything that at least on the radio but I'll tell you when my first exposure to something really heavy was when I heard the song Back in Black on the radio. The album had just come out. I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but when that came out, I was like, oh my goodness, this is the heaviest thing I've ever heard. And that just whetted my appetite for more. Um, so, I mean, that, that was, that was kind of what set me on the path. And oddly enough, I, uh, that that album is on this list um, that we're going to talk about. So um, I and I think you I think you were right behind me. Yeah, I I think so too. But I I'm pretty sure that the first ACDC that I ever heard in my life, whereas Back in Black was the Brian Johnson era. Uh, I remember hearing Dirty Deeds Done, Done Dirt, Dirt Cheap, cheap yeah. by, a, what was his name, David Campbell? Yeah. Yeah. He was the one that uh, was playing Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, and and uh, I heard Problem Child and all that stuff, and I was like, wow. Yeah, that okay. became your theme Two different song. worlds of ACDC. That, that became your theme song, of course. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we're, we'll talk about that later on. Um, so uh, I guess... To, to to dive into this, um, well, first of all, let me ask you this: um, What you and I were never really rebels. I mean, you know, we we had our, I guess we had our moments. Um, you more than me, but uh, what was it that drove you? What what was it that that you you listened to that and went, yes, this is this is something for me. Well, uh, to avoid the stereotype, uh, there was a lot of things that we didn't do growing up because of the fact that, you know, our parents were the way they were. Uh, and not, that's not a insult. That's not a complaint or anything like that. But uh, there are certain ways that when you're angry about something that it comes out. And music usually is that particular outlet, you know. I mean, you could tell, and just about anybody you ask in this day and time, well, that, 
you know, I, I need an outlet for my frustrations and all of that. So I guess that kind of sums it up. Well, I, I, you know, I've, I've heard that and, and that was never, that was never my appeal for me. I just, I, I think what the appeal to me was, is that it was, and I've, I've heard this from other, I've, I've read this in articles and I've heard this in interviews, where basically it was something that belonged to me. When we were growing up, the music we were listening to was our parents' music. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I've actually found myself going back and listening to me some of that stuff. You know, I mean, we grew up on what classical and Perry Como, Perry Como, and and country and western. You know, uh, the great Johnny Cash, Loretta Lynn, um, Charlie Pride, and and those were great. And we lo- we loved the those that music at the time, but it wasn't our own. You know that that was. That was what our parents liked, and we. Well, they also they also put in a, a good helping of classical, well, and classical, and, and all of that, and, stuff. and so, some southern gospel, and a lot of southern gospel and stuff like that. But of course, dad was dad was much more into the soft, peaceful music. Well, you, you know, know, whenever we're taking those long road trips, yeah, you get to memorize these songs and everything. And now, if you played them, it'd be called the Golden Oldies. Well, yeah, but what I'm saying is that that. Nothing wrong with that, but you know, it 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 really didn't feel like our own. I always craved. I remember craving. I said, you know, there's some of some of this music had certain th- aspects to it that I could identify with or I could enjoy, but it wasn't there. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. And then when I started, like I said, when I started listening to the radio, uh-huh. and I started. Um, I started to begin to, I said, you know, I really like that one. Okay. I don't really like that one. And, uh, and then of course I was gravitating towards the guitar. Even then I was gravitating towards the guitar, but I didn't realize it. Um, I mean, I, there was some realization, but it wasn't, I wasn't inspired enough and we'll get to that. I wasn't inspired enough until, um, to, 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 to actually do something, but I was, I was starting on that path. You know what I'm saying? I remember it well. And, uh, so anyway, um, so for me, it wasn't an angry thing for me. It was a, it was something that I could call my own. I mean, obviously these were other people's songs, but it was something that I could, I could say this is, you know, this is what I, this is what makes uh, life more pleasurable. Absolutely. At, at at for me, you know, I I mean I I I, I like some of the some of the some of the country songs we listen to. I appreciated them for what they were, but they didn't. They didn't hit me. Now I go back and I li- I listen to the lyrics and see that's something else. I was less I cared less about the lyrics. Yeah. Uh, and more about the music. Absolutely. You know, to me, 
I mean, I, I do think good lyrics are important, but for me, it was all about the music. I could almost care less what they said. Um, and, and as a, as a kid, when we listened to like, I, I don't know if you remember, um, the song by, um, Oh, I can't remember her name now. Lynn Anderson. Uh, she had a song called, I don't want to play house. Yes. I remember okay. it very well. Well, when you're six or seven years old, you don't understand what, uh, the lyric, um, I don't want to play house. It makes my mommy cry. Cause yeah. when she played house, my daddy said goodbye. Absolutely. I couldn't, I, I couldn't. I couldn't, I, I didn't really understand what that meant. Yeah. And so there was no, there was kind of really no impact. It, now, later on, yeah. you know, when I got older, I could understand that. But but for me, it was all about the music. Yeah. And I also found, and I hate to say this, and I don't want to put any country fans on the spot, because there's some really, just some real talent. There's There's been real talent in, uh, you, we used to watch Hee Haw, and there was tons of tons of instrumental talent and tons of absolutely but, but um i just found that a lot of country songs sounded the same to me sound wise not necessarily lyric wise but and there was there was a few that didn't sound alike um but in country music it was all about the lyric the the music was almost i won't say secondary but you know if you, it, to me, it always bothered me, and this is what bothers me about modern day praise and worship music, is that they find a chord progression and then they, you know, maybe they put a different lick in front and different lick in the middle and different lick at the end, but it's the same, basically the same song rewritten with different lyrics. I kind of got a problem with that, and although some people would argue that a lot of heavy metal and rock music is like that too, and and there may be some legitimacy to that, but. Um, it definitely sounded different when, when I started getting into it. So, um, un unless you have a comment. Well, you have to remember though, that, uh, the progression to use your word of what you listened to got heavier as the years went by. And there was a definite progression as far as, uh, the artists, and the heaviness of the artists, because like for me, I can remember when the heaviest thing I heard was Roll With The Changes by Ario Speedwagon. I remember when they were considered hard rock. Right, I remember that too. Uh, and then you turn around and then you listen to when Foreigner was big. Right. The whole... And I was a huge Foreigner fan. Yeah, I, I believe me, I was there and I remember that, you know, the whole... Uh, Head Games, mm -hmm. which is a phenomenal album. It's a great album, yeah. Years later. Yeah, it's a great album. Okay. And then when we both heard the first Boston album. Right, Okay, right, yeah. which that in itself, I mean, here it is 2020, and their original, their first album is still selling. Right. Okay, that is that is phenomenal in itself. Yeah, that's a testament to the timelessness of that, those, that's that That's a testament yeah. of how good their songwriting was right. and how everything sounded. But once again, you went from listening to Aria Speedwagon to Boston and it got progressively heavier from there. And Well, it hit me, I, I can tell you, as you speak of Boston, I, uh, and of course that's not on the list because this is, that was 1976 when that came out, but um, the the thing about it is, is that um, it hit me 
I remember hearing that, and it was just so powerful. It was huge. That that was the thing. It was enormous. It was, it was enveloping. You know, it 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 had such an. I I'm using words that sound like, you know, punching, but it really did. It sounded like fighting. It it it, it was impactful, and and I mean, even some of the lyrics I didn't understand. But like I said, I didn't I didn't necessarily care because the music was so good, the melodies were so good, the arrangements were so good. And I didn't, you know, at that time I didn't have any earthly idea what all that was. I was just like, man, this is just it's a powerful. great song. It's well, it's a great song, but it was powerful and not it 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 made me it it, it 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 might have been, might have been a little bit of an illusion there, but uh, it made me. It just had so much girth, <laughs> it, you know. It had so much. Um, I guess the the best word I can use is impact. It it just it it sounded. I mean, you go back and you listen to those those solid chords on that first album, uh, Boston's first album, and oh my gosh, that's as heavy as. Is anything you know? I re- and people can say Boston heavy. You you, gotta, you have to understand sonically. Sonically, that that album is. It's well written. The musicianship is on point. The songwriting, the lyrical, everything. I mean, it was a statement as a first album. Okay, because of the fact that. As I've heard it said, and you can notice, you can go to any CD selling place or anything like that, and you'll still see Boston's first album being sold as if it was just released. Okay, I don't think I've ever seen Boston one in the discount bin. I have, but um, you have to remember that. Uh, well, let me rephrase. Even to today, 2020. Yeah, yeah it's, okay. It's still, you hear it on the radio. Everybody knows more right. than a feeling. It is. It is. It, it when you talk about classic rock, um, even you know, the young kids recognize right, it. Right. Exactly. You know, even when you talk about classic rock, it's Boston, it's Skinnerd, it's ACDC, it's ACDC, it's uh, Led Zeppelin. It's, it's foreigner. It's foreigner, right? I mean, and 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 I guarantee you that if I, as I name off those bands, you could probably tell me which song they're going to play on the radio. Or yeah, you're exactly yeah. right. So if I were to say Zeppelin, what do you think is going to play in Zeppelin? Whole lot of Rosie or Stairway to Heaven. Whole lot of Rosie is ACDC, remember? Oh yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, uh, whole lot, of, whole love. lot of love. Right. Yeah. Thank you for correcting right. me. All right. Maybe it. Black Dog. Um, you know, over the hills and far, far away. away. Yeah, but yeah, that that that's a classic. Or houses yeah. of the holy. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of Zeppelin that gets played, but generally speaking, you're gonna know probably those first two. The, or the I, radio gems, I, right? And if I say Skinner, what are you gonna what are you gonna automatically think? Sweet Home Alabama, or you Kansas? Know, they're gonna play yeah, Carry yeah, On My gonna, Wayward Son, right? Kansas. You know, occasionally you might hear uh, Point of No Return. Um, or if you're lucky and the, and the DJ playing it decides he's going to throw you a curve, he'll play play the game tonight. Yeah, which that is was, off a of left overture, right? No, it's off play the game. It's off. It's off the the album. 
Oh, okay. Play, play the game. Wow, it yeah. shows what I how much yeah. I remember. But anyway, and of course we're you know we haven't even gotten to our list yet. But okay. this kind of sets up the uh, kind of the progression, I guess you would say, uh, to where we to where we're getting. So um, we're gonna. I guess we're gonna go ahead and, and talk about our. But you got you can't forget to bridge for our listeners where the bridge presented itself and we had to cross into the the metal world which is if i remember correctly the very first time you heard women and children first by van halen well because no, i remember it was, the it was it was not women and children first that was the first album that i saw um oh okay that, that was the first album that i saw i'd gone over to a, a friend's house and and his apparently he his dad had a uh, a record collection kind of, <laughs> it looked like a record store i mean he had like bins full and i was just thumbing through and i yeah. found this album and i was like who is this and you look on the back of women and children first and that was like that is like one of my favorite pictures as a matter of fact um as you can see in my background there on my phone yeah. i have that yeah, that's the wonderful thing about vinyl thing. records because you could look at them and they were presented right. real well and everything. But I, 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 I remember stuff. seeing that and I, and I was like, man, these guys must be able to play because they look so cool. <laughs> and so I went down to the local pawn shop. I, I went down to the local pawn shop and and that and that and that guitar, that customized Ibanez Destroyer, that, well, that Eddie customized with a chainsaw. But it looked it looked so. I was like, this is otherworldly. So I went to try and find that album, and I couldn't find it because I went down to the local pawn shop. They were selling eight tracks for like two bucks. Yeah. So I went down there, but I found, I found Van Halen two. Eight tracks, folks. Yes, that tells you tracks. how old we are. So, um, and uh, so I went and bought. I bought. I said, well, I think it must be the same band. So I mean, it's the same band. So it's got to sound cool. And I remember popping it in. And the first song that I heard was Michael Anthony's, with Michael Anthony's bass. And I, it was just like, that's, that's cool. I didn't even know what it was, but it was cool. You know, how he got that sound. But uh, it was um, You're No Good, their version of You're No Good, which totally rocked compared to Linda Ronstadt's original. And, uh, wait a minute, let me stop you there. You're talking about you're no good. Yeah. Okay. So you bought that. You must have bought Van Halen too. That's what I said. Okay. Yeah. I, right. I, I How bought, did I miss that? I'm I right across the table. You were drinking, you. you were drinking coffee or. Okay. Cause something. I was talking about, uh, women and children first. Yes. Next thing you know, you're no, talking about that. I just said that I, that was not the first album I heard. That was the first album that I saw. Okay. Well folks, yeah. now you know, I only listen halfway to him most of yeah, the time. That's, so. that's my true. oops. My bad. And, I stand correct. Don't worry. There'll be more of that. I'm sure throughout this podcast. You um, said something? Uh, yes. Okay. So, um, so it, but the, but the song that I absolutely said I have to do that was somebody get me a doctor. As soon as those chords came on, and he played that, and then he, it was huge. It was Boston huge, but different. It was much more raw. It was much more, um, what's the word, um. 
I was just like, these four guys are making. I didn't. I didn't know anything about overdubbing. I didn't know anything about. You know, I just knew that that was one guitar that huge, and I was like, I remember I was I was sitting in the recliner listening in the headphones, and I was like, I've got to do that. You're witnessing the birth of a Van Halen fan. I I got to I have to do that, and I ended up so I got that one, and then the next I got. Van Halen one, I think I got it. I got it on cassette, and I did find eventually. I found Women and Children first on eight track, brand spanking new for only two dollars, and I what bought it. Buy. Yeah, I bought it, and of course I was also just for the record, I was also a huge Journey fan by then, and uh, I mean. You know, so a lot of people say, well, Journey, that's not heavy. You don't understand. Their early albums... Back then, they were considered hard, yeah, considered hard, hard rock. rock. I mean, and it's... it's They were they were immense. So I, I was listening... I was huge, especially the, the album Evolution, and I bought... I also bought Brand New for $2. Uh-huh. Um, Journey's Captured, the live album. And I was just like... Between the Van Halen 2 and that one... I was just ca- I was captured. That was the that was the birth of what we like to call now arena rock. Right. The acts that were prepared for the big time coliseums right. and right. arenas and stuff. And and they and they and they could do it. So, um, uh, I guess I guess you know, and that's that's where my main inspiration on. But of course, Van Halen two was actually it's not on this list either because it was 1979. So yeah, Van Halen one no is list. 1978. And then Van Halen two nineteen seventy nine. So Women and Children first is nineteen eighty. Well, we're just we're just setting the stage, stage for yeah. what opened the door for us right. to listen to metal. The right. first albums that got us got us uh, to because I hate using the word woken up to this style of music right. and everything to which alerted us. Yeah, what? alert. That's a better word. Yeah, yeah, alerted us to it. Yes. So. Um, so I guess before we get into the list, what was the, what was the album? Because uh, you know every, everybody knows if you've listened to the podcast, I am a guitar player. Um, what uh, most people don't know is that my brother is, in a sense, a guitar player too. He's more of a hobbyist than uh, you know. A perfor- He's not a performer, um, but. You know, it's kind of an outlet for you. And so what would be, what what was the, what was your, I don't want to even, I don't like to use this term. What was your coming out moment? What was your, uh, well, I think the first metal albums that I can honestly say I heard and what got me alerted to the fact that I liked it was, uh, for those about to rock, we salute you by ACDC. Yeah, I remember that. And then I didn't really consider them metal per se. I just considered kind of a heavy blues rock. But I really, the one that really beat me over the head and made me just like, oh yeah, I'm a metal head now was uh, 1983's Peace of Mind by Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden, yep, I remember Iron that Iron Maiden is what I yeah. ate, slept, yep. drunk. Everything. As, I mean, I. I just, remember. I remember. Oh, it wasn't too long after that. You ended up getting Killers, 
And yeah. the first one, yeah, you were a big maiden. Yeah, fan. I was all about that, and I, to this day, even though this is something me and William disagree about, I'm a Dave Murray fan. I'm oh. Dave Murray is Iron Maiden to me, and William would be like, "Well, you know, Adrian Smith." I'm like, "Yeah, but I like Dave Murray's playing." So we're never going to agree on that. Well, but. we can we can talk a little more about that as we go through the list. But it was Iron Maiden, though. Okay, so with that, you know. Uh, and as as a, a final, I guess si- side note, what was the what was the song or album that made you say, you know, I think I'd like to try my hand at playing guitar. Oh wow, that one, that one's a little bit harder for me to articulate what made me decide I wanted to start playing guitar, but. If I had to put a label on it, I would probably say that it was British Steel by Judas Priest. Okay. That and was probably the one that really got me that, that into right it. There, that right there is going to be our segue into this list. Okay. Because that album was in 1980. Okay, so <clears throat> I've made a list of the, my top 20 albums between from 1980 to 1990. Now, there's I've got a list of honorable mentions that they didn't quite make my list, but I still think they're important. So I guess you could say this is a top 30, but um, I'm, and I'm, I've kind of, I want to rate these albums as we discuss them. I want to rate these albums with, with uh, six categories. Okay. Songwriting, it kind of, they're each, it's going to be a rating of one to 10, one being the lowest, 10 being the highest. And these six categories, songwriting, overall sound, guitar playing, the influence of the album, top performer of the album, and the classic tracks on the album. So okay. as, as we discuss that, um, that way it'll, it'll allow, you know, because obviously you and I don't share the same opinions on every track. So, and they, they strike us differently. So <clears throat> my number one on the list is Kill 'Em All by Metallica. That came out in 1983. And so uh, I'm going to... I'm going to... If I were to say... Uh, uh, rate 1 to 10 on the songwriting scale, what would your what would your opinion be on that? I would give it a strong 6. Okay. I mean, can you explain why? Uh, well, because there are highlights out of the album. It's not one of those albums that is... Uh, it's not one of those albums where every song is a winner. I mean, there are a couple songs on there that you go, yeah, I totally, that one just totally rocks and everything. But it was it was better as a complete package than it was individual songs. Uh the heaviness of the album was groundbreaking, okay? Because even to this day, James Hetfield is the first name on everybody's list as far as thrash guitar playing, rhythm guitar playing. He's the first one everybody thinks of, okay? Uh, the attitude of the album, uh, they were young, they were hungry, and it was so new of a sound that it just t- it took everybody by surprise. So, uh, 
I give it a strong six because it's more of a statement on, album. On the songwriting category. Yeah, I mean, they're not all... They're not all gems. Yeah, they're not all gems, but they they that was their first album, and you just knew that better things were coming. Okay, um, well, I guess I can... I can kind of see that. I don't necessarily dispute that. I, I agree with you. Not every song on the album. All the riffs are great. Absolutely. But, but the the songs with, you know, taking all the parts together and the vocal, you know, everything, I, I, I think I agree that it is probably a six. Now, what about overall sound? Overall sound? Uh I think Lars Ulrich's drumming was phenomenal. The way that it was recorded, all of that. Uh, the rhythm work was uh, unique because nobody had been doing that until Hetfield came out with it. That I'm aware of. Okay, let me just say it that way. I mean, uh, there was probably people doing stuff similar, but it wasn't in the wasn't in my realm of listening at the time uh the bass work was phenomenal okay uh as far as the leads are concerned at the time when i heard it it i was at you know whenever i first heard metallica uh and i could i i'll branch off in a later later part in this talk about how i heard them but uh, the solos ripped my face off at that time, so to speak. Yeah, you Be still have the scars. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, <laughs> but I thought it was phenomenal at the time as far as the, the, the lead work. But hindsight being twenty twenty, there's so much better to come from Kirk Hammett and everything. But it was good enough at the time for me to be like, oh, man, Kirk Hammett's, man, he's just awesome. So... Uh, I would give the lead playing probably a solid six too. Okay, well that's that's under the guitar playing category. Yeah, I was, it, I was speaking of the overall sound of the album. Oh yeah, well it I was mean, a big beefy sound for me, that. Time to me, that... to me, it was um, what made it kind of appealing. Is it was very raw. It had, it had the punk ethic almost. What um, made it appealing to me was at the time. James Hetfield was the most pissed off man in the universe. It showed in his lyrical content, showed in their concert performance. Uh, they just, they were all the live life fast and everything. They, they just did it. They, so, they lived as fast as they played. So what would you rate the, okay, you kind of already said what the guitar playing is. I, I would, I would agree that Hetfield, um, he totally, he totally made the, uh, he, he changed the game in a lot of ways. Um, uh, Kirk Hammett, I had a kind of a, I thought that he fit Metallica very well. Yeah. Um, and I thought he was raw in his playing, which is what the music called for. And there, there are a lot of people who kind of criticize Kirk because he, you know, he tends to rely on the wah and stuff like that. But you have to understand, there's a lot of players that that, that rely on the wah. Joe Satriani uses the wah a lot. Um, Slash uses the wah a lot. And I just, 
I don't have a problem with it. The man had, he, he definitely forged his own sound as far as I'm concerned. And he was in the a Bay Area band that was in competition with Metallica at the time, which was Exodus. Um, he came from Exodus. He had started Exodus, actually. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and so, you know, clearly they found... They they found somebody when they replaced Dave Mustaine. They found somebody that that seemed compatible with their sound, and I agree with that. I I think that that his rawness, um, and his I mean he 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 has skills. I mean, there's no doubt about that. As, as time goes by, because you made reference to they found somebody to replace Dave Mustaine. Because I have been followed Metallica from their first album all the way up to the uh, Black album, where after that, I could, admittedly, I couldn't get with them anymore. They just didn't appeal to me the same way. But I often think to myself, was, Dave, was Kirk Hammett a good fit because he was a good player, or was he a good fit because he didn't butt heads with Mr. Hetfield? Okay. Well, I, I, and we don't understand the politics yeah, ahead of that, so we true. won't go any farther with that's that. That's true. Um, okay, so what about um, you? Kind of alluded to it, but what about influence? Influence. Uh, what do you? I. Do you, I, do you think that 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 album was probably because you know we've said we've used the word game changer. You know we. Well, when I first heard Motor Breath. The third album on Kill, I mean the third song on Kill 'Em All. I got my, uh, got tongue tied there for a minute. Uh, very first time I heard Motor Breath, and I realized just how much the, the technique that Mr. Hetfield was using. I was like, man, if I, if you try to emulate it what he's doing, you're going to find that it's going to take a lot of work as a guitar player to do it, okay, without getting very technical about it. Uh, when I realized playing like that could be done, that just like, wow, I wish I could do that. To this day, I still can't. Uh, <laughs> that, But yeah, that made a statement to me because I'd never heard that technique before. And from so, then on, it's just like... So do you think that I really do think that the the influence of Kill 'Em All was as easily an influential album, absolutely, as, as Black Sabbath's first album, as Van Halen's first album, as uh, I would even I would say that it's it's is influential at least in the metal community, um, in the rock community, as easily as influential as. Boston's first album. You could sum it up like this. Anybody that is a thrash metal fan, you will be hard-pressed to find somebody that does not have that album in their collection. I would agree. Um, so, and you've kind of already said this, who do you think is the top performer of that album? Of, well, of the four. The top performer of that album? Yeah. Of the... Of, the, of Kill em All. Of all the musicians involved in that album? Yeah, yeah. Uh... I 
I'm going to say James Hetfield because of the fact that, uh, I mean, and, and it makes it sound like the album is all him and everything, and in certain instances it probably is, but... Uh, if he wasn't involved in it, and I mean, you, you just found some way to pull his identity out of that album, it'd be a flop. So I gotta say, uh, Hetfield is the is the top performer on that album. Everybody else just kind of rallies around him, and it works. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I, I'm gonna say that I think he got edged out by uh, Cliff Burton, um, because. Cliff Burton's performance on there you don't really you hear it but I mean his influence his playing and I don't mean just anesthesia pulling teeth I mean the the track anesthesia pulling teeth I mean his his overall performance and his ability to make make the sound cohesive it yes we got Hetfield's riffs and uh-huh. and certainly he has a great performance on there and we got the you know we've got the sonic we've got the leads and we got Lars Ulrich um I think playing very well on them but to me I think the the real the real edge is Cliff Burton uh I I, I just that's what I think I I think that he was he supported James Hetfield's rhythm guitar so well. He was the he was the link between Hetfield and Lars, and I, I just I think he was. To I me, could agree with that. that. I'm not going to dispute that. All right. So, what is the classic track on that album? It's a tie between uh, the Four Horsemen and Hit the Lights. Because of the fact that, like I said, if you ask any thrash fan to, if we were playing uh, heavy metal uh, uh, Jeopardy or something, and they said name name a song from Metallica's Kill 'Em All album, most metal heads right off the bat is either going to say Hit the Lights or The Four Horsemen because those are the signature songs on that album for me i think the uh classic track on the album it's not necessarily my favorite but it is a classic is jump in the fire um i think and of course that's a mustaine riff but uh i so is four horsemen well yeah so is four horsemen but um for me jump in the fire is probably the the most classic of the track all right let's uh let's move on to number two unless you have any uh, final comment on that. Um, I guess not. All right. Um, number two, believe it or not, is another Metallica. Ab- actually, my top, my first three are Metallica albums. Uh, 1984's Ride the Lightning. Now, um, I don't want to. Let's let's just kind of um, let's just kind of rather than go through all six categories uh or we can go through all six categories but what we'll do is we'll just like 
I'll, I'll, I'll say the category. You give me a number of what you think. And then after we go through all the categories, then we'll comment on it. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So, all right. So uh, as far as songwriting, one to 10 on Ride the Lightning. I'll have to give that one an eight. Okay. Okay. Because the songwriting had definitely gotten better. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. All right. Um, uh, overall sound. I'd give that an eight as well, too. Okay. I, I'd agree with that. Um, guitar playing. I'd give that an eight as well. I'm going to give that one a nine. I, I find that, that um, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. All right. How about influence? That's a nine. Yeah, I would agree that's with that. That's very much that's, a nine. That's nine. As a matter of fact, it, it's kind of hard to imagine that they would top, you know, their debut but they not only topped it they went beyond it well i mean think about it one of the very first songs that people want to hear at any of their concerts is for whom the bell tolls oh, right right that is a that is the stairway right. to heaven or of metallica or um um yeah i can even th- i can picture it um they're that's not really a ballad but it kind of um you're not talking about Escape, are you? No, I'm talking about uh, the one. Da, 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 I, Call I'm, of Cthulhu? No, I'm, no, that's an instrumental off that album. I'm, I'm thinking of the um, Fade to Black. That's one. Oh, I'm yeah, that's right. Yeah. Fade to Black's yeah. another one. You're right. I think, I think Fade to Black is. All right. Um, influence. Or oh, we were talking. Yeah, we yeah, just said influence. Yeah, influence. Okay. Um, top performer of that album. Top performer on that album. That's kind of hard to call, considering that, once again, I would say Hetfield, but Hammett's playing, was he, he upped his game on the second album and everything, but I would say James Hetfield again because of the fact that anybody that's listened to the opening rip of, riff of Creeping Death and actually tried to play it, the, you're going to have a new respect for Mr. Hetfield's right hand as far as playing guitar. Um, you don't just... Just as a technical, you don't have to get right up on it. You don't have to bear up on it. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm I've got I got a good strong signal. I got, yeah, I got That's all right. That's I fine. I understand why you do that one. I love all right. That album. Um, well, I think I'm gonna have to agree with you on that one too, because I think, uh, I think his, because basically, you know, Kirk Hammett was just there for the solos. So every guitar other than the solos was pretty much James Hetfield. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, Although I do know, I don't know which song it is, but I do know Hammett's got a couple of riffs. I think he's on, I think he's got a co-write on Fight Fire with Fire. I'm not sure. But, um, so, you know, clearly Kirk Hammett had much more of a... Absolutely. Uh, a part, you know, but I, I'm going to go with Hetfield on that. Um, and, but I also do agree with you that, that um, uh, Kirk Hammett, he he went from that raw, much more refined, on that album. All right, um, and so that was top form. All right, classic track. You you kind of already said it. For whom the bell tolls, uh, people ask for fade to black because that's where all the lighters come out and everything. Because everybody loves fade to black and creeping death. death. Those creeping are the death. highlights of that album. To me, creeping death is the pinnacle of thrash metal i'm sorry i i think it's a well-written song it's well written i mean everything including the lyrics everything about it to me is 
that should be the thrash theme song that should be the if if you if you could put thrash in a book that should be on the cover that that should be the, the cover of the book okay um so before we move on to the next next album uh what do you you know do you have any final comments on that there's, I mean, it's definitely a progression as far as their recording, their musicianship, uh, the overall package of the band. Uh, they definitely gelled well together. They found their sound big, yeah. bold, bludgeoning. Yeah. Uh, and that was a, what do they call it, a sophomore effort? An excellent yeah. sophomore yeah. album. Yeah, yeah. That's another one that is a must-have in any true thrash fans I think, record. Com- I, I'll say this: I think if Ride the Lightning had been their debut, yeah, I don't think Kill 'Em All would have been. I don't think Kill 'Em All would have been um, thought of. And, and matter of fact, I think I think Kill 'Em All would be regarded as a poor album in comparison. Now, because of where you know, because they did their their first one, which was great. I I still think it's a great album, uh-huh. but to me, you you had this. They they kicked in the door with Kill 'Em All, uh-huh. and then I'm gonna use a John Wick reference. They 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 kicked in the door, and then they proceeded with with Kill 'Em All. They proceeded to do that just that. They proceeded to, uh, you know. They proceeded to slay everybody in the... Be careful how you use the word slay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I often imagine if they had taken a few selective tracks that they put on uh, Ride the Lightning, if they had mixed them with some of the songs on Kill 'Em All, what that would have been like because if you remember correctly some of the album some of the songs on Ride the Lightning were Mustaine tunes That's as true. well. That is true. Or riffs that Dave Mustaine had contributed. Right. That is true. But I don't know I don't know how cuz the other thing about Kill 'em All and we're kind of reverting back the other thing about Kill 'em All was that um some of those riffs that Hetfield wrote were, I won't say direct ripoffs, but they were kind of, you know, they were definitely influenced by people like Diamond Head and. Uh, well, that's y- who his influences are. Yeah, you're right, right. Sabbath. And, and, yeah, Head exactly. Kind of so you know you Merciful had and fate, and so, so and and fair enough. So did so was Mustaine. Yeah. And so there was this and, and Lars Ulrich, you know, uh, and so there was this. But they were, I won't say they were blatant riff-offs because it's, it sounds like Metallica, but there was a, it was very, of course, we didn't know this at the time we were getting into the albums because we had never heard of Diamond Head until Absolutely. after, after we, you know. But what I'm saying is that uh, I think that there was less imitation on Ride the Lightning than there was, they had shed their, you know, all bands go through this kind of thing where they, they write songs, but it's going to sound like, okay, I can hear Iron Maiden in that. I can hear Van Halen in that. I can hear Juice Priest in that. I can hear Diamond Head in that. I can, and then, 
because like you know our my band's first recording you can go back and you can say okay i hear i hear uh i hear docking in that i hear van halen in that i hear you know this that i hear i hear this thing but when we get to our second album you don't hear those influences quite as much ride the lightning was where metallica used what's left of the dave mustaine influence and got on with their own identity okay i, I would agree with that all right um <sighs> album number three from the decade of the of 80 to 90 comes in 1985 you want to take a guess of which album this is clue me in it's a metallica album it's certainly you're not talking about master puppets because it right. came out in 86 96, right um well uh it appeared in 1986 but it was actually pretty much done recorded in 1985. Okay, well, but, but 86 yes, is the year that, he's that it's recognized. Um, okay, so again, we'll do some categories here. Um, songwriting? Songwriting, I'm going to give that one a 9 right okay. off the bat, because right. every song on it is yes. well-written. Yeah, all killer, no filler. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, it was bludgeoning. It was well-worded. It was intelligent. It was... Uh, it was heavy. It Yeah, heavy. It was cinder block heavy. Yeah. Uh, and it was, once again, they broke new ground with that album. I mean, it is a gem. Okay. Um, what about overall sound? Overall sound... Uh, if I had to describe it, if you were to lift a pallet of bricks up 100 feet in the air and drop it on the asphalt, that'd be one-third of how heavy you get from that album. That album is... So what do you, what do you give it rating-wise? It's a 10. It's a 10? It's a 10. I'm going to... And I'm probably going to tick off a lot of uh, Metallica fans by saying this, but... Um, I still think Ride the Lightning is a better album, sound-wise, and uh, it's undoubtedly Metallica's. Uh, Master Puppets is probably Metallica's most cohesive work. It's probably their most. Um, it, that is probably the the most mature work that they had done. I think it is more mature than Ride the Lightning. But I like the sound of Ride the Lightning better to me. And so I'm I'm kinda gonna I'm kinda gonna give it a like a I'm gonna give Master of Puppets a nine. That's where you and I degree yeah. disagree because Master of Puppets opened the mansion doors to what we know as heavy. Oh that is thrash. true. That that is true. But that was that was James Hetfield at his most angry his most bludgeoning. I mean, that was a steamroller album. Okay, so what do you give the guitar playing in that? Ten. Okay. Right off the bat. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to agree with that, especially Hetfield's playing on Disposable Heroes. Exactly. I, uh, You know, that, oh my gosh, you have to have a very relaxed but powerful right hand to be able to, to execute that. The songs are long. Yeah, that is and, true. And, but. They're very too. Just when you think 
that James Hetfield's going to let up on off of you for a moment. They open up with battery, which beats you about the head and shoulders. And then they turn around and they hit you with Master of Puppets. And just when you think they're going to let up on you, they, they hit you again with Disposable Heroes. You're getting sonically beat up. It's beautiful. Uh, um, okay, so... Um... I, I think that, uh, and I also think that Kirk Hammett's playing on that. That was his finest that, moment that on was, that album. That was probably, yeah, I would agree with that. I think he had finally got to, because the, the one thing about Ride that I don't like about um, sound-wise is that it seems like Kirk Hammett's solos are slightly buried in the mix, whereas you can hear them much clearer on Master. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think his performance is is stunning too. It's, it, it's it's really it's hard enough to play the rhythms. It's also hard to try and play at those tempos, play the leads that he plays at those tempos. So, all right. Um, I think I think we can pretty much say that master the influence. What would you give that? A ten. I'm going to give it a ten too. Um, Top performer of the album. Wow. There's so many kudos you got to give to that album because. Well, uh, let me, before you, before you continue, I'm just going to say right now. And all the haters can hate. Haters are going to hate. Absolutely. Um, But I think Lars Ulrich plays amazingly on that album. Now, I'm not a drummer, but I've worked with plenty of drummers. And I can tell, I, I don't know why Lars gets a lot of hate, but I have to tell you, um, it seems like everything he plays on that album is perfect for that album. I, I really do. I think, I think Lars is the top performer of that album. Well... This as far and I'm as this, a guitar player, so well as far as this album's concerned, I'm going to wholeheartedly agree with you on that, and I'm going to tell you why. In 1986, when that album came out, and of course all the rock and roll magazines were taking pictures of their concerts and stuff like that, I saw a picture of Lars Ulrich sitting at his drum kit, and he had an oxygen tank attached to it. And when I realized just how fast battery is being played damage incorporated is being played uh master of puppets is being played and how you know i can't imagine him playing that fast you know if the venue was hot like an outdoor festival right but when i realized exactly how much activity that he has to do for that album the the, the requirements on his body I understood why he had an oxygen tank, so I'm going to agree with you and say he was the top performer because that was a very fast album to have to be playing drums on. All right, and I'm going to let you have the last word on this. What do you think the classic track on that album was? Uh, well, because there were so many of them that people will name, and I'll explain why I call it, say this, I'm going to say that the classic track on that is Damage Incorporated because Damage Incorporated is 
like if you remember the old Priest album, every album that they had, they always had one what we call an anthem. Right. Okay. And it's usually at the end of the album. And uh, that album, not only, I mean, that song not only is a song, it's more of an attitude for all the loyal Metallica fans because that's the song that uh, I identify with on that album, okay, because it's an attitude. Uh, Master of Puppets is, the title track is also a notable. Uh, disposable Heroes, like you said. Uh, it's hard to put any one single one there without feeling guilty, but I'm going to say Damage Incorporated is the classic. Well, I'm I'm going to say the classic is the title track um, because it kind of, it's the focal point of the album for me. Um, I like all the other tracks, but that one there seems to be the, the, you know, like when we were talking about the Boston album and you, and you said, you know, more than a feeling, that's the classic track. There, I think there are better tracks on the album, but that's the classic It track. is notable. Everybody right, knows right. that song. So, I mean, if, 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 even if you're not a Metallica fan, you probably know or have heard or at least heard reference Master Puppets, the song itself. Every kid walking around know if you just played the intro to that song, they'd know it's they'd Metallica. Know, right. That's their that's a signature. <clears throat> okay. Well, now we're gonna shift gears a little bit. We're still on the list. And a number four on my list. We're gonna go back to nineteen eighty, okay? Women and Children First by Van Halen. Oh wow! And now, now some people say, "Well, you just talked about Metallica. How could you say? How could you even say that Van Halen is be flexible, metal? folks? Be flexible. But, but see, what people don't understand is that these were Van Halen, even Van Halen themselves didn't like to be called heavy metal. They like to be called big rock, is what they like to be called, you know. But they kind of fell under the. Uh, under the category, usually, you know, in record stores, so I think when you see heavy metal, Van Halen is probably in there. Absolutely. You know, just like ACDC. They would consider themselves rock and roll, but it, generally speaking, they got categorized under heavy metal. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, Van Halen was just as much an influence uh, on some of these metal artists that we're going to be talking about. They, somewhere in there, uh, Van Halen was. Everybody's you know, got something to, to that they owe to Eddie Van Halen. Right. So, so let's talk about women and children first. And and I'm going to. Uh, <clears throat> that's their third album. And uh, what would you rate the songwriting on that? Seven. Seven. I <laughs> I hate to say this because I think it's a great album, but I'm going to give it a six. And I'll tell you why. Um, I know we said we we're going to go through the categories, but I'm going to tell you why I'm giving the songwriting a six. Okay, I think could the could this be magic is funny, but the album is too short. I would have I wouldn't have minded that being in there like, you know, as a goof, you know, just something for fun and stuff like which it was, uh -huh. but uh, and I think it's funny. So I'll listen to it. I mean, I enjoy it, but. It just, to me, I think that was just, if anything, that was probably more a Dave thing. Yeah. Um, 
because you know there were songs like you know I liked I like of course I like In the Cradle with Will Rock, uh-huh. um, and I but you know Romeo Delight, uh, and uh, Fools, Fools was great. Um, it's very true. And yes, it is true. Why behave in public when you're living on a playground? Um, and then, uh, <laughs> yeah, I liked loss of control and I also liked in a simple rhyme. I really did like that song. Um, but I think that it was probably three tracks short of greatness. I know Eddie could have had, now I understand there, there's some things aspects to the the, the music business because they they had come off tour and they they were on this album tour got to got to do a new album tour come in and do a new album and that can exhaust a band. How and, stoned were they when they were and recording? And that's that's entirely <laughs> possible too. But I love the album as it is, but from a songwriting perspective. There wasn't there was the the ones that are on there that are strong are really strong. Yeah, but I would say four songs. Uh, oh well, what was the other one? Um, Take your whiskey home is a great song. Yeah. So okay, maybe six. There's maybe six songs out of ten that. And then the title track, "Women and Children First. Well, there is no title track, "Women and Children First. Oh yeah, okay. That's, well, that's, once that's again, there. You go again, folks. I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I'm going to give the songwriting a six. Not not because the songs are bad. Uh-huh. It's just there's not enough of them. I'll agree with that. Okay. Overall sound. Now I'm talking about the overall sound. I'm not just talking about Eddie's guitar. I'm talking about the overall sound of the album. Six. Okay. Uh, I'm. I kind of. I kind of vacillate between six and seven. Um, it was definitely not the big sound of the first two albums. Um, it seemed a bit rushed. It's it. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, because Eddie's such a great player and he's got such great tone, it it kind of makes up for it. I mean, he can, you know, he can he can drop a pan on his foot and still sound good. You know, and he could tour successfully on that, I'm sure. But um, I just, I, to me, it sounded like it, it didn't have the big bombastic feel. Although, I got to tell you, I think that Romeo Delight is a superb track. I, I do. I think it is a superb track. I also think that Take Your Whiskey Home is a superb track. But there's something... I can't put my finger on it. They did something different in the studio. And I realize that, you know, you're trying to capture lightning in a bottle and you can't do that. I mean, but at the same time, they just, they did something different. I don't know. As they do with every album. You know, there's there's something that just wasn't, wasn't there. I I like it for what it is. And I don't think it sounds dated. Uh I don't, I don't mean that. I just mean that. In comparison to Van Halen 1 and Van Halen 2, and also in comparison to Fair Warning, uh-huh. which came after it, uh-huh. I don't think 
I, I think if you were to look on a graph, you'd see this line and you'd see a dip. I, I still think that I still think that the first four Van Halen albums are the pinnacle. Well, but I, I'm going to say based on listening to the album that Women and Children First was probably that album that they had halfway written and then they got rushed at the last minute and possible. they had to throw the last three songs yeah, in there halfway. I, th- I think there was something to the effect that, that, that all, call the, it an album. all the music was recorded in like two weeks. Yeah, something like and, that. They were and, rushed. They weren't know, able to to really yeah, do their know. thing. But they called it, they packaged it. They sold it and, and, they, and they got it, you know. Yeah. And there is magic on it. There's, you know, and I don't mean could this be magic. I mean yeah. there is magic on it. But I, I, I think that, I think I agree with you. I think that they, um, I there's just something about the sound that is just not quite there for a Absolutely. Van Halen album, even though it's classic and I love it. I, I, I mean I do love it. I As listen do to I. it. But I, I think if. Those song, if there'd been more songs like Romeo Delight, uh huh, and with the Van Halen one or two sound, uh huh, I think that would have been much better. That yeah, that would have been that so, would have been golden. All right, so I I guess I don't need to say what we rate the guitar playing at. Well, it's Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, it's so a high yeah, nine and ten, ten all the time. Right, exactly. And I think I think even even on that album, I think that whatever sound issues i think that it has he leveled it up um he was always doing something new now it's interesting because he didn't really do a guitar solo like he did in one and two Uh um you know we have tora tora but that's more of an effect than anything i mean he he does do he, he does do you know whammy bar stuff and little studio tricks but he's not it's not really a guitar solo and it's just kind of a effect. It was Edward being Edward. Yeah, you know, going so, for what the song. But needs. there's no doubt. There's no doubt that the that all the guitar playing, even on the silly stuff, is just drop dead. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's Eddie. Um, influence. Uh, well, I'm going to give that a nine, considering that you and I both remember the first time we heard "In the Cradle Will Rock." Okay, right. so the influence is there. It's nostalgic. That's yet another song that uh, you hear on the radio. Yep, that's, that's true. That's one of the main players. You know, everybody knows, and the credit will rock. Right. Everybody knows. Have you seen Junior's Grades? Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, what's uh, the new band that, um, one of the new bands that Portnoy has um, with uh, Billy Sheehan and... Uh, Derek Sherinian and you got me there because okay, it, it, they're uh, I forget what they're, it, it, it escapes me. I, I just had it on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Sons of Apollo, this, oh, yeah, that's this right. band is Sons of Apollo, and actually, in on their first uh, their first gig, you know, when they had just an album out, uh-huh. you know, they they played some Van Halen songs. Yeah, and Cradle Rock was one of them. And once again, if it's not influential, if Edward Van Halen is influ- influential, then how is it you have people like Brad Paisley playing Van Halen tunes? Right, Man's you know, I mean, influential. It's there's there. So I would agree with you on that. <sighs> Top performer on the album, Alex Van Halen, on on Women and Children First. Alex Van Halen's drumming is tight. The sound is there. 
Uh, the man doesn't say a whole lot, but he speaks volumes with his drums. The man is a phenomenal drummer. I'm going to throw this out here. You're going to, you're probably going to dispute me on this, but I'm going to say Michael Anthony, and I'm going to tell you why. Now, obviously, I'm a huge Edward Van Halen fan. Okay, but not only can Michael Anthony keep up with Eddie and Alex, uh-huh. okay, he also sings background. And not only does he sing background, but a lot of those really high notes and stuff like that, that's not David Lee Roth, that's Michael Anthony. Okay, and if you listen, particularly if you listen to Romeo Delight, is a great example of that. Uh-huh. You listen to Romeo Delight, and you listen to the licks that, that Michael Anthony is playing uh-huh. underneath, uh-huh. especially when Edward goes to, you know, when it's rhythm guitar, because not everything, every lead that he does is overdubbed. He goes from rhythm to lead. So uh-huh. sometimes you hear him go to a fill, you hear, you hear the guitar drop out, but nothing drops out. You know, you can tell that the guitar goes to a, to a lead fill, uh-huh. but you still got that. With that being said, because I also think I'm going to answer the next question by saying this, Romeo Delight is the highlight of the album. And the reason why I like Romeo Delight is because I absolutely love listening to Alex Van Halen on that song. Oh, yeah. Because Alex is doing things that just, how in the world does he do that? There's a swing. To, that's that's the that's the one thing that I have to say that makes uh, Van Halen such an influential band. There is this swing. Everybody talks about it. I mean, I listen to guitar podcasts and I listen to, I listen, I read articles and stuff like that. And even people who aren't necessarily like the rock and metal genre, all of them acknowledge that there is this swing. There's this this. You can't play. And I know this because I've tried, you know, I've tried what Van Halen songs I can play. There is a swing that is very hard. Going back to the first album, uh, I'm the One, uh-huh. that is extremely difficult to play at tempo with that swing. It's, it's, there is just something about the way Eddie and Alex play. If you, if you listen to most, there's a signature that it's not so much in women and children first, oddly enough, but it 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 is in most of their music. You hear this tupa tapa tupa tapa the 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 the, uh-huh. the groove of Hopper Teacher, which comes uh-huh. you know later. Is that tupa tapa tupa tapa? It's an intuition between brothers. But that's what it is musically. It's it it's a swing, uh-huh. and it almost if if you you either have it or you don't, and uh-huh. so. Uh, I I I think th- I think that's what you're you're saying was for, with regard to Alex because somehow or another I mean I if you go back and you listen even their mistakes have a swing to it if you listen to and if you can identify the mistakes and, and you know after listening to these albums for you know uh-huh. thirty forty years uh-huh. uh, I can start hearing and and the the better I begin as a player I go back and I go you know what I think they made a mistake there. But it's definitely Alex. He's but, the, yeah. he's the, he's the, uh, he's the most swing. valuable player on that album. And, um, okay. I would, I, 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 well, I, like I said, I, I think Michael Anthony was, but it's kind of hard to pick. Um, but okay. So what would you say is the classic track on that album? Romeo delight, delight. Romeo delight. Okay. All right. We're going to move on. And now we're going to discuss number five on there is, 
the predecessor to Women and Children First, 1981's Fair Warning. Now, huh. songwriting, what do you give it? Ten. Okay. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give it a ten with a caveat. And the caveat is, when I first heard it, there was two tracks on there. There were three tracks on there that at first I didn't really like. Um, they weren't bad, but they didn't sound Van Halen-y to me. They do now, but at the time, they didn't. And I was like, you know, but, it, you know, at, over over the years, I've gone back and I'm like, okay, yeah. Especially, uh, one of them was, could this be love? Uh-huh. So, no, not could this be love. So this is love. Not uh-huh. could this be love. So this is love. And I expected something harder, not so happy. Uh-huh. And then the other one was, of course, the um, Sunday Afternoon in the Park, which is the... the Oregon Segway. The Oregon into... Segway. And then um, the, the third one that I wasn't real sure about that I, I had to grow into was Push Come to Shove. Uh-huh. Okay. But the more I listened to that album... I mean, every time any track any track that comes off of that album, I just I'm like I I'm just like yeah, it's there. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess those things had had to grow on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with your ten with. For a long time, it was it would be more like an eight or a nine, but I, I'm gonna have to agree with you on the ten. All right, overall sound, ten. Okay, I'm gonna yep. 10, and I'm going to tell you why. You could hear the bass. Uh-huh. If you listen, that bass is pumping, and it's perfect. Uh-huh. All right? Along with Eddie's, and it, and it, it suits Eddie's. It's not the same sound as on the first album. Uh-huh. It's But it's much more... It's huge, but not in the same way Van Halen one was. It's huge in that it, to me it sounds like he recorded at a very hot level, so that he could get all that air in the room moving. But then when they when they mastered it, they brought it down. It, the, the best way I can describe it is they 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 took a nuclear explosion. And they managed to contain it in a small area. Uh huh. So that's what his sound. Well, they definitely did cram the GD in the bottle and lock it tight. Yeah, that is but, for sure. But, and of course, you know that that album was Eddie was, you know, he was not happy in the band. Things weren't were kind of not going the way he had hoped, and things like. So there was a lot of, and of course. A lot of the solos that he recorded were record. You talk about angry. Yeah. He was, you know, very angry, and it shows. Um, yeah. And and I think it it really got a great performance out of him. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think that's what the intent was, but so um, and again, so overall sound, I'm I'm agree with you on on that, but I I think it's largely because of the bass. Um, 
I mean, Eddie's guitar, of course, but I think that that it, it, that one there, you can hear the bass a lot clearer than you can on the previous three. I yeah. mean, really clear. Yeah. Um, but it's not it's not woofy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's it's very tight. They're uh, all cohesive. Right. All right. Well, I guess uh, I don't even need to say what we rate the guitar playing. Once uh, again, it's Eddie. Ten, it's Edward. So, um, influence. Now, this one you might influence. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say it like this: the very first time that I heard the solo to Main Street. Street. I mean, Main Street. Yes. Once again. Yeah, you're thinking of about... another. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Once the very first time I heard that. Okay, that is such a large statement in so few notes. Uh, it's, it de definitely is the Eddie Van Halen, uh, stamp, so to speak. Uh, I, the album influenced me, the, the songs that influenced me from the album, the ways why I think Fair Warning is their finest moment. Uh, Main Street, Center Swing. And one foot out the door. Those are the three songs that I remember listening to the most. Uh, Even though one foot out the door is like what a minute thirty. Yeah, but that's okay though. It's a short song, straight to the point. Everybody out there that's heard it can somehow relate to it in one way or another. Come on, folks, let's be honest. Uh, and the songwriting. Fabulous. I know I'm jumping around. You probably haven't asked me that question yet. But well, we, 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 songwriting was the first thing. I, yeah, you know, I mean, but that is... We're talking about the influence, you know. Uh, that's another album that if you say you're a Van Halen fan and you don't have that in your collection, uh, somebody might say that you're lying. I don't know. Um, okay. Um, I Obviously, as a matter of fact, a lot of people that... I, you know, at the time that, that, that Fair Warning came out, it was their lowest rated album. Um, it, that was a grower. It was an album that... that it's that, called a Dark Horse album. Yeah, it was. It hits you later on. Yeah, and, 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 it, and it did because there's a lot of people who go back and go, you know what, my favorite album was Fair Warning. Uh -huh. And I have to say that that is my favorite album, too, of, of, of all the collection. I think that one... I mean, obviously the first four... But to me, Fair Warning was. Those are the songs I listened to that's, first. Yeah, those are else. those are the ones that I really enjoy. All right, um, top performer of the album. Oh wow, um, where do I begin? It's a three-way tie because Michael Anthony's bass is dead on. Alex Van Halen's drum tone, everything he was doing was tight. And Edward, being Edward, just put the cream at the top of the cake, so to speak. So it's a three-way tie. I mean, it's just one of those things where they got together as a band. And I think they said, here, Dave, put some lyrics over top of it, and we're going to package it and sell it. Well, obviously, you know, it's because Edward is such a, such a huge... Uh, influence on me naturally i would say edward but i gotta tell you i think the top performer of that album was david lee roth and i'll tell you why 
because one of the things I think the lyrics to Mean Street are probably his best lyrics. It's not so much party. Uh-huh. Um, and... It's a darker album thematically. Well, thematically it's a darker album. But also, even though Roth is not doing as many hoops and hollers, he's still doing it. Especially, uh-huh. like, when you listen to Dirty Movies is the name yeah. of the song. You know? and, and then... Uh, and I forgot about that song, too. Yeah, and so that's, that's one of my favorite... Oddly enough, that's one of my favorite Edward Van Halen rhythm tracks. Uh-huh. And it's Drop D, folks. I want to point something out. Eddie Van Halen was doing Drop D in 1981 before it w- before the grunge players were doing it. Now, you could say, well, you know, Tony Iommi was drop tuning and so Yes, he was. But all you Drop D guys that was it was real popular with all the all the grunge bands and I don't really I don't really count Alice in Chains as a grunge band. I mean, they had some grunge to them, but I think they were kind of grunge with metal yeah you know more black sabbath than than pearl jam by by but a lot of these people who were playing drop d because it was easy well eddie wasn't playing drop d because it was easy he was playing drop d because he needed he was expanding his vocabulary and that riff right there, I defy some of you drop D players who just one finger power chord things try to do that rhythm track and with the same swing and with the same uh, uh, um, oh, I got a little text here. Always gotta, always gotta thank the wife. Um, anyway, uh, so, but I, I think David Lee Roth, he really, I, I'm, I think he's a great vocalist. I don't think he's a great singer. Yeah. But I think he's a great vocalist, and there's a lot of bluesiness. In this, in this album, like you said, it's a dark album. Yeah. So, I'm going to give top performer on that album, with Eddie being aside, because I clearly that's one of the reasons why we listen. But I think Roth really outdid himself lyrically on that album. Yeah, me too. And, and I think so. he'll get some leg tonight for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, classic track on that album. Just pick one. Pick one. Mean Street. Mean Street. Yep. That's it. All right. Let's uh we're gonna we're gonna take a break for just a slight pause, station break here, and then we'll be back to discuss uh the next next album on our list. I wanna keep you guys guessing. Okay, and we're back from our little break here, and we're gonna go to uh album Number six from 1980, ACDC's Back in Black. And we'll just start off one to ten songwriting. Ten. Ten. I'll agree with that. Uh, overall sound. Uh, 
Ten. Ten. Yeah, I'm gonna agree with that. Guitar playing. Ten. Ten. Yeah. Influence. Ten. Ten. <laughs> Top performer of the album. Malcolm Young. Malcolm Young. I'm gonna go with Brian Johnson. Uh because not only did he step into the shoes of the late Bon Scott, he he really he really rose to the occasion. I mean, he really and, and the funny thing is, he doesn't sound anything like Bon. No, he does. No, he doesn't sound anything like Bon. And his performance on there is incredibly stellar. Uh, I mean, I would agree with you on Malcolm because, you know, he and Angus wrote the riffs. Uh-huh. But I have to tell you, all the pressure, I'm not saying that, well, I should say all the pressure, but the majority of the pressure was on Brian Johnson. And I think he, uh, I think he just rose to the occasion. I, I, I really do. I think his, his performance and there's been some dispute about whether or not he actually wrote most of the, uh, some some people have theorized that he was singing lyrics already penned by Bon Scott. I don't necessarily believe that. Well, regardless who wrote them, right. You don't necessarily he's singing them. Right. Okay. Whoever wrote them, okay. Even if they were written by Bond Scott, okay, I find that hard to believe because the album was written as a tribute to Bond Scott. So why would Bond Scott write songs about his own death? Well, they they um, they uh, the you know I've heard a couple of different theories. Uh, and I'm I'm not gonna I I listened to a couple of different podcasts and, and I'm not saying that the podcaster who who was interviewing these people who were saying these things I'm not saying the podcaster necessarily believes it uh-huh. but I, I just I found some, and there was some plausibility to some of the, the 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 things but I just don't uh, I just think that Brian Johnson really he really met and surpassed all expectations yes so yes. uh and and but but he didn't do it by imitating bond he did it by being himself yeah exactly so uh i really think that he was uh the top performer uh, on that album all right classic track on the album the title track you shook me all night long, and I would probably say have a drink on me because uh, those are the most common songs that I hear on the radio or played. Uh, you go into any bar that plays ACDC, you're going to hear have a drink on me, obviously, you know, uh, subliminal, buy more beer, buy more drinks. Uh but I would venture to say that the songs that 
come off that album the most would be the title track and you shook me all night long uh i'm gonna say uh and hell's bells hell's bells yeah well i do think back in black is the classic track i i think it is the it's the pinnacle of the album as far as i'm concerned it's the song that beginner guitar players try to learn too that's true and there's a good reason for it there's something about that it's harmonically it's simple but you try to play like that well there is what i like to call angus isms yes that angus will do things that are not necessarily theoretically correct but because it sounds good he doesn't necessarily you know it's like hey you know if i want to play a g this way as long as it sounds big loud and powerful, and it fits the song. He's going to use it right. Now, I I skipped over this one. I and I should have said it. How about influence? There is no rock band out there, no musician, no drummer, no rhythm guitar player in existence that cannot track their beginning days back to that uh, album. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, I would agree. That's the song that. People play when they go, hey, look, this is one of the first songs I know how to play. Because, you know, right. the, the, the ACDC formula, it's worked all this year, all these years. Basic but powerful. Well, I, re- I, I remember reading an article in Guitar World. They were rating like the top 100 albums of the decade or whatever it was. Uh-huh. And, of course, Back in Black was on the list and the, the, the line that I remember it was, it was a short paragraph but the line I remember is this if this album doesn't move you you're probably dead <laughs> exactly right so alright um, s- before you go on to the next I want to explain why I said Malcolm Young okay because many years ago I don't remember what drew our conversation to this but I was talking about the earlier ACDC albums with Bon Scott and I forget what song I was talking about, but the comment came from you. I wish they would learn to tune their guitars. And some some of their songs, I often go, you know, it, it's hard to tune to them, you know, because they just sound so much different than the production of Back in Black. Like if you go back and you listen to like uh, Give Me a Bullet yeah. or, you know, the uh, Power Ridge album yeah. or something like that. Or uh, ain't no fun waiting around to be a millionaire. Sometimes it just kind of sounds like they're not exactly all in tune. Right. And I was sitting there thinking about that. Why would he say that? And then it dawned on me listening to some of the earlier stuff that in Back in Black, I guess they all figured out how to tune and no one I, big block sound. Well, you know? now, first of all, me when I said that, you also have to understand that... Uh, and I still stand by that statement, but for a different reason. Okay. But you have to understand that that as a young person who had barely been playing for a little bit, I was speaking somewhat out of ignorance. I still stand by the statement, but I understand now what ACDC was about they were a bar band uh they were a rock and roll band they were fun they were 
they weren't really taking themselves that seriously. Uh-huh. And that's what that was part of their appeal. Because uh-huh. they sounded exactly on the albums like they sounded live. Uh-huh. They, they, you know, and so that translates. And, you know, okay, so maybe they weren't quite into... Well, Jimi Hendrix wasn't in tune all the time. And, and uh, I mean, I've seen performances of bands where, you know, guitar guitar player that I know um, knows how to play... But there's a there's a little there's a little grit there's uh-huh. a little uh, you know that's what they were they were a gritty bar band they were you know it wasn't all about that's I mean think about it you know Brian Johnson is not exactly a crooner and, and well neither was neither was uh, Bon Scott but my point is that at that time I didn't I didn't realize that that was part of their appeal. Well, I guess I should step back a second and also analyze Back in Black as this. ACDC celebrated a huge victory in the Bon Scott years with Highway to Hell. Right. Okay, because everybody knows Highway to Hell. Right. They once again visited Victory Lane, so to speak, with Back in Black with a new singer. So they've been in that winner's circle if you will twice with two different singers okay because as classic as highway to hell is because let's face it everybody knows the signature highway to hell riff right if they don't already know all the lyrics by heart okay uh same thing with back in black okay so that that proves the influentialism of both singers right All right, that's the end of part one on episode 16, and part two will pick up right where we left off.